Okay, so Happy New Year to everyone. Good to see everybody. What a great way to start the new year with the people of God. And uh, just excited about that. So, uh, Will and I will be teaching this class, Soteriology, also known as the Doctrine of Salvation. And, uh, you know, just thinking about this class, what a joy it is going to be, I hope, to get to ponder together just the greatness of salvation and what the Lord has done in bringing us to himself. Uh, you'll see there on your note sheet where we will be heading. So you, there should be two sides to your note sheet there. So the front side, kind of your syllabus outline for the class Today, we're going to be mainly just looking at the definition of salvation, um, specifically in its theological or spiritual usage. Um, the following two weeks, you see here, we'll look at the need for salvation, and we'll follow that by looking at God's provision for salvation for a couple weeks, and then the following three weeks, we'll focus on the accomplishment of salvation by our Lord Jesus. That will take us into the application of salvation. It's also known as the Ordo Salutis, to use its Latin name, or the Order of Salvation. Um, and like I said, that'll take us uh, eight weeks. That will be, we'll be looking at that. And then we're going to conclude by focusing on the assurance of salvation uh, those last two weeks together. So we hope you're excited about what, what it is that we're going to be covering in our, in our time together. Um, I remember speaking with a lady about salvation one time and the importance of, of being right with God, and, and she seemed to be tracking with what I was, I was saying. But when she started to talk about God saving her, it became apparent to me that our definition of salvation in the context of our conversation was very, very different. Uh, she started telling me about how God had healed her physically um, and how when she looks back at the course of her life, she just has seen the hand of God over and over, saving her from harmful physical situations. Now, all of that is great and worthy of praise uh, to the Lord, but as I was having that conversation, it dawned on me of how very important it is to make sure that we're defining a word that we're using in its context very carefully. Because what I was talking about in salvation was different than what she was talking about regarding uh, salvation. Now, to be sure, the Bible does use the term salvation or saved or some other derivative of that word in a number of ways. So I don't necessarily fault this lady for not understanding exactly what it was that I was trying to talk about. Um, but the context of a word is very important in understanding its meaning. Uh, we can get confused when we open our Bibles and, and we seek to define the word salvation or saved in just one way. Uh, if we have something in our mind where we're thinking, every time I see the word salvation or saved, it means this. Uh, we can confuse ourselves uh, if that be the case. We want to understand the context in which that word is being Use. We must know what it means in its, in its context to understand it properly. So I just want to take a few minutes here uh, to see how this word is used throughout Scripture. And you can see there 
on your outline on the, on the other side from the other side from the syllabus. The definition of salvation, the basic meaning of that is deliverance. And the Bible uses that word in a number of ways, physical deliverance, national deliverance, spiritual deliverance, eternal deliverance. And I want to look at uh, a few of these here with you to begin. Psalm 20, verse 6, what we see here is God saving, the, saving man physically. And Psalm 20, verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. This is David's testimony. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And here David was proclaiming God's salvation in the physical sense of, of being saved from his physical enemies. Okay? Psalm 28, verse 9 testifies the same type of sentiment here. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them uh, forever. That kind of bleeds into national uh, deliverance as well. But again, this is a physical uh, uh, crying out here. Psalm 44, verse 3 as well. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Okay, so that, that context becomes very clear, okay, talking about swords and so on and so forth, uh, that they were saved by God physically. Okay? And then another way that we see the word used is in man saving man physically. 1 Samuel 10, 27, uh, this is at the, uh, with King Saul. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man, referring to Saul, save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Okay, so we're looking at Saul and saying, how is he going to be the one to deliver us, to, to save us? Okay, so that's one way that the Bible talks about salvation, is in that realm of physical deliverance. And then you see it also being used in national deliverance. In Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Okay, so that was being spoken of to the, to the nation of Israel. And the same thing is said in Jeremiah 30, verse 10. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Okay, so there again is that aspect of, of national deliverance. Now, the way that it's used mostly and the way that we think about it mostly is in the term of spiritual deliverance. Okay? Isaiah 45, verse 22 speaks to this end. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Okay, so here's a proclamation to the whole world. Interestingly, this was the text, I don't know if you know the story of Charles Spurgeon, but he kind of stumbled into a church one snowy evening, and this was the text that was being preached on that God used to convert him. Uh, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Okay, so it's going beyond the realm of physical deliverance that he is the one true and living God who needs to be turned to. 
And then a text that we have just spent some time on during this Christmas season, Matthew 121. Somebody want to read that for us? He will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so there's that aspect of the word save, or salvation being used in the context of a spiritual deliverance. He's going to save his people from their sins. Okay, save his people from their sins. And then in Acts 16, 31, remember Paul and Silas singing songs in prison and the jailer, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay, so there's another example of this spiritual deliverance that the jailer needed. And then a very popular passage for us, Ephesians 2, 5, and eight, if somebody would like to read that for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Okay, so there's, there's just a, a few samples of this aspect of spiritual deliverance, being saved from our sins. Um, and then you have reference to an eternal deliverance, which would kind of be coupled with that spiritual deliverance. Um, Hebrews 5, 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Okay, So hopefully just through looking at a few of those passages, you can see why it would be important when we see that word save or salvation, saved, something like that, that we make sure we understand the context in which that word is being used so we can understand what's being, being said there. Now, for our time together this morning, we're going to focus on the theological usage of this term salvation. And the theological use, usage focuses specifically on how God saves man from his sin, which is the greatest deliverance mankind can receive. And the rest of this class will be focused in on that, not just this morning, but the rest of our, our study together. And we see how the Bible uses that term salvation or something like it in three different tenses, past, present, and future. Uh, even, if, even if that word saved or salvation isn't used specifically, the doctrine of salvation is clearly implied by numerous texts that we will examine here. So let's start with the past tense of salvation, the reality that we have been saved. The theological term for this is justification. And I'm not going to spend time going into detail about justification because you can see there on your outline we're going to devote a whole class to it in the future. But essentially, when we talk about salvation in this way, when we talk about justification, what we're, being ta what we're talking about is being delivered, or we have been delivered, from the penalty of sin when we talk about justification. That's the sense in which we have been saved. Okay? And there's numerous texts that point to this reality. Romans 6.23, if somebody can read that for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, good. So there, there's the aspect of having been saved or having been delivered from the penalty of sin. In, in this uh, passage, the penalty of sin is shown here as death, right? And this reaches all the way back into Genesis. 
the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, right? So this is the reality that we have been saved from the penalty of the sin of death when the Lord brought us to himself. Romans 5.1 talks about it in a, in a similar way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think about the penalty of sin here, we think about the reality that what's the opposite of peace? War, right? So we were at war with God prior to our justification, right? There was enmity, as the Bible says, between us and him. But now we have been justified, or you could say saved, just making sure that you define that correctly. Because of that, we now have peace. So that war has ceased, and we have peace now with God. And Romans 8.1 speaks very similar to this as well. Somebody can read that for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so there's, there's another way that the Bible speaks about that penalty of sin, the penalty of sin being condemned. And we recognize that that means being condemned eternally, right? Separated from God forever. But because we're in Christ Jesus now, there's no condemnation. What a joy that is, right? That glorious reality that there's nothing against us. There's no accusation that will come before us at the throne of God. What a glorious reality. Christ has taken all of our condemnation away from us. Here's some other passages that speak about our salvation being something that has happened to us in the past. We looked at Ephesians 2, 5, and 8, and just kind of highlighting on the past tense here. You have been saved two times in those verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. Somebody want to read that for us? When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of our works, I'm sorry, excuse me, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own Okay, good. So there's that, that past aspect. Again, he saved us. Okay? This is what God has done for us. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. This is Paul speaking to Timothy, if somebody would like to read that for us. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share his suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Okay, so there's Paul's testimony to Timothy. Timothy, he has saved us, right? And called us to a holy calling. Okay, so there's the reality again that our sins have been dealt with. The penalty of sin has been taken away from us. That is the sense in which we have been saved when we think about it in these terms, okay? So that's the past tense. There's tons of other texts as well that could go along with that, but just to give you a little sampling so as not to uh, exhaust all the scriptures here. Uh, any, any questions or comments before we move on to the present aspect of salvation that the scriptures use? Okay. 
All right, let's take a look at that, that next part here. The Bible speaks ab about our salvation in terms of us being saved, present tense, which is seen as point number two there on your outline. Theologically, this is called progressive sanctification, another term that will be given a whole class later on in our study. And this deals with God delivering us presently, saving us from the power of sin. So we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. He does this by making us progressively holy. Now, he has means by which he does this that he calls us to participate in. I want to show you a few examples of this. John 17, 17, as Jesus is praying for his disciples, not only then, but as he says a few verses later on here in John 17, I'm not praying only for them, but all who would believe in me through their word. And he says this, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Sanctify means to set apart, to set apart as holy. And so there's that aspect in which the word of God not only brings us to salvation in the sense of our justification, but the word of God is the means by which we are made progressively holy. Okay? So the word of God is instrumental in us becoming more like Jesus and looking more like him. And you can probably attest to this yourself. You notice times when you're not in the word as you ought to be. Typically, you see sin getting a greater foothold in your life during that time. Um, I know that I've seen that in my life far too often. And, uh, but I can always equate it back to that, right? I can look at that and say, here, here, this isn't hard to figure out in a sense. Hard to solve sometimes in being disciplined. Um, but, but that aspect of becoming holy is linked inseparably with being in the word of God and giving yourself to that. Okay? Another passage that speaks to this end is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. If somebody would like to read that for us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, good. So there's that aspect of work out your own salvation, right? So there's, there's a sense in which that, yeah, you have been saved, but now it's going to manifest itself, right? If you've truly been saved, it's going to do something in your life. It's going to have an effect. And, and here's the hope for us is for it is God who works in you, both to will, to give you the desire, and to work to accomplish those things for his good pleasure. Okay? So there's that aspect that, that your salvation, that once you've been justified, now something happens from that. And it's, we're, we're commanded to walk in holiness in that way. But it's, it's given to us by God. There's a desire there because the Spirit of God now indwells us. God gives us that desire to want to be in the Word, to want to be in prayer, to want to talk to people about Jesus, to want to treat others around us in a way that would be honoring to the Lord. Okay? So in, in that sense, the Lord is, is continuing to save us, not in the sense of justification, but in the sense of making us more holy in his sight uh, practically as it's worked out day by day. Uh, another passage here in 2 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, 
Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So there's that aspect that Peter talks about, this magnificent reality that look at what we've been brought into, right, in this glorious reality. And then he calls us, add these things to your faith, right? Be more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. So again, there's this working out of these things that we have been brought into. And again, our hope is rooted in what we saw in Philippians 2, that it's God who works in us in that way for his glory. And then John speaks about it this way in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, and then also verse 9, if somebody would like to read that for us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so very important to understand this passage The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, we can look at that and just come to the conclusion that he's only speaking about justification, right? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But as we read a little bit further and we get into verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then when you get into chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us, He says, Beloved, I write these things to you, not that you may sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So there's just this ongoing sense in which God is saving us, that he's constantly forgiving us of our sins as we come to him and we confess our sins to him. He's washing them away moment by moment, day by day, uh, knowing that we have already been saved and him. We've already been justified in his sight, but the evidence of that will be your desire to live holy. Okay? And so, again, we're going to dive into this aspect of progressive sanctification in a class and give a whole, a whole class to it when we get into the order of salvation. But just wanted to give you a, a sample of how the scripture speaks about this aspect of us being saved or being delivered from the power of sin. Okay? All right, let's li- look at this last point here on your outline there. Number three, the last tense is future. The future tense of salvation is also known as glorification. Something that's going to happen, right? You will be saved. (laughs) You say, well, I thought I was saved. Well, you, you have been saved, but you're going to be saved as well. Right? So you, know, you can get really confused if you don't understand the context in which these things are being used. What the Bible refers to here, again, is this aspect of glorification. You can see on your outline, we'll talk about this in one class in and of itself. And this is when God will deliver us from the presence of sin. And what a joyful day that will be. Amen. Amen. To never have an errant thought. For every thought you ever have, always being pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Every word you will speak in glory, every motive, all of it pure and holy in His sight. What a day. What a day. 
So we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. And just a few passages that kind of speak to this aspect of our salvation in a future, in a future tense. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 46, where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, why that should catch our attention is because we should say, hold on a second. Don't I have eternal life now? And the answer to that would be yes. You do have eternal life right now, but you don't have the fullness of that eternal life that you will have on that day. Because look at what John 5.24 says. Jesus speaking here says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So there's a sense... That already happened. You have eternal life, but you're going to enter into eternal life as well. Okay? So you possess it now, which is the guarantee that you're going to enter into it on that glorious day that is is to come. So again, we want to make sure that we understand it correctly, that eternal life isn't just something that's in the future. It's because you have it now that you are guaranteed to walk into it in all its glory and in all its fullness on that day. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And notice this. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Okay, so it's, it's looking forward, but it's, it's rooted in the reality that you already are, right? What you are about to enter into. What's your hope on that day when you stand before an all-holy God? that he's going to count you righteous and that you're going to enter into eternal life. It's because you have, you have obtained it already. You have it now. There isn't any condemnation. It's because you have been saved. But the Bible speaks about this in such a way that it's going to happen in the future. And we know that it certainly will for the people of God. Watch, watch how Paul uses this a little bit later on in Romans. He's, taught, he's, he's encouraging us here to walk in holiness and then he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Isn't that interesting? Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Right? So there's something that happened, but there is a salvation coming to us as well. Right? On that, on that glorious last day. Really interesting how Paul uses that here and kind of wraps up all of salvation, this aspect of, yes, you obtained it when you first believed, you have it now, and it's near, it's closer to you now than when you first first believed. And he speaks to the church at Thessalonica <coughs> in a similar way. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet 
the hope of salvation. Okay? Now, the reason that I have Romans 8, 24, and 25 there, hopefully, is hope is future tense. Okay? Because Paul says here in Romans 8, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So this hope is placed in something that is yet to come to us. And Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, put on as a helmet the hope of salvation. So I wait a minute, don't, don't we have salvation already? Yes. That's the reason you can put on that helmet with confidence. Because you know that day is coming where God is going to wrap up everything and bring you into that glorious eternal life that he has promised for all who are in him. Okay, so those, those are a few ways. And it's helpful as you're reading through the scriptures to understand the context in which that word is being used so that you don't get confused or you don't get thrown off. You don't think, well, I thought I was saved. Now I have no assurance. How can I know that I'm going to be saved on that day? Um, so understanding the totality of our salvation, of what God has done for us in Christ, helps us uh, to be able to walk forward with great confidence and to live knowing that we are in right standing with God. I want to conclude with a text here that I think speaks to every aspect of our salvation, and that is Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. It isn't there on your notes. You can just jot it down at the bottom if you want, but go ahead and turn there with me. Titus chapter 2. And I have this little diagram up on the screen, and sorry if it looks like, you know, like a first grader wrote that. I, I used my finger and wrote it on OneNote, which was my first time using OneNote. I was like, this is really actually a good thing. I should use this more often. Um, but, but anyway, I just try to lay this chart out here for you to help you to visualize what salvation looks like. And it was actually a little more difficult to try to, uh, I didn't have one of those fancy pens that you can use. And Anyway, I did the best that I could. <laughs> it looks great, Ron. Oh, thank you. Yes, all right, good. All right, praise, praise the Lord. Okay, no, no, it's, a, it's, it's far worse? Okay, good. <laughs> all right, so Titus 2, 11 through 13. Let's go ahead and read this first, and then I'll kind of lay out what I think we see in Scripture, and I think how this passage just really does well in bringing together this whole aspect of salvation. Starting in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What an awesome passage that is. So I have there at the, at the beginning um, just that flat line, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, which we'll hit on in the next couple of weeks when we speak about the need for salvation, the reality that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then for each of us, there was that reality of Titus 2, 11 happening, that the grace of God 
appear. Now, this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming and bringing salvation for all people, but in application, that happened to us each at a different time, that that salvation came to us, that God justified us and, and made us his own. That's what the cross represents there. Now, from that point, it's been a war. Can you attest to that reality, right? It's been a fight to live holy, right? And so you have this up and down of the Christian life, which we would call progressive sanctification. And I think that's what Paul gets at here to Titus in verse 12. Notice what he says here about the grace of God. It trains us. Isn't that beautiful? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You haven't arrived. You're not there yet, right? There's this training process that you're going through that God day by day is training us. And you think of the patience of God with us, right? I don't know about you, but there's just times where you're just like, I'm so sick and tired of myself and this sin that I see within me. I'm just longing for that day when this is over. But God is patiently training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Just moment by moment, day by day, convicting us of things, bringing to us, turn away from that, don't do that, do this, live holy, so on and so forth. Okay, and so that's, that's the war that's going on for each one of us. There's those times we're at the top of the mountain, right? Just like, this is cool. If I died right now, it'd be great, right? Just that, those days where just walking with Jesus and you feel so close to him and intimate with him. And then there's just days where you feel miles away. It's like, I don't even know if I'm saved. I don't even know if I'm a believer, right? And just looking back to the gospel and reassuring your heart, no, I'm, I'm right with God, okay? And those are those valleys that, that we go through. But you see the linear projection of this, right? That, that it's, it's moving upwards. In your day-to-day -day life, it feels just like that yo-yo, but you're moving upwards. So you can look back over your life, hopefully, over the last five years, maybe, and, and say, okay, I'm, I'm seeing signs of grace, right? Of, of God keeping me and growing me and making me holy as he is holy. I'm not where I want to be yet, but I'm further along. God's working in me that which is pleasing in his sight, moment by moment, day by day. So there, there, there's this upward movement in our lives as God just continues to work in us over a, over a span of time. And then that, that looks to this glorious promise in verse 13. As God is doing this, as he's training us, we're waiting for something, right? Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. And what is it? What is the blessed hope that we're waiting for? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a statement. You see these bookends, right? The grace of God has appeared, and you're waiting for the appearance of the grace of God as well, the person of Jesus Christ. And on that day, whether we die first, to see him, or if we're still alive when he returns. It's just a vertical up. That's it. The, the, 
the war is over, it's finished, you're glorified in the presence of God. No more sin, no more rebellion against God. Nothing but perfect fellowship with the Savior. That correlates with uh, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, which I think I put up here. Okay, um, this, this aspect of appearing, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await. Right? So here's what Paul is saying in Titus. We're waiting for something. And Paul's saying this in another way in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he appears, like Paul says here in, to Titus, what is he going to do according to what he says in Philippians? He's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's that glorious day that's going to come for us where we will be resurrected, where we'll come up out of the graves and we'll be perfected to live in physical bodies, glorified, perfect with our King forever. And so Paul lays that out. Here's what the Christian life looks like in summary in verses 11, 12, and 13 of Titus 2. The grace of God appears to you at a point in your life. You're made his own. From that point forward, it's training ground. You're being made holy. You're turning away from sinful things. You're turning to righteousness. And all the while, you're kind of standing on the edge and just looking and waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ to crack the sky and come back and get us. And how glorious that is. So that, that's the totality when we talk about salvation, I think that's a good passage to look at to say, here's, here's what it, it, it just encapsulates everything. Justification, progressive sanctification, glorification. It's all wrapped up nicely in, this, in these uh, three verses here. So that's what I have for you today. Next week, Lord willing, will, will begin to help us see why salvation is even needed in the first place. So I hope that definition is helpful for you as we uh, launch into this study together. Any questions or, or comments on these things? I think one of the things that is so exciting about the future yes. is we'll stand before God and he'll never mention anything we've ever done Right. Wrong. Oh, man. You know, he'll only judge us according to, from the time we knew, knew him, our works, but not negative, not yeah. sin. Yeah, there's no... Whether or not our works were in him yeah. or in our own self. Yeah, all those accusations have been settled at the cross. I know, isn't that exciting? The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands was nailed to the cross, what Paul says in Colossians 2. It's unspeakably glorious. It's, it's incredible. It's something I don't meditate on as often as I ought to. But yeah, that, that is worthy of praise and, and glory. Okay. All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and conclude with prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time together where we've been able to open your word and to try to understand this glorious term of 
salvation and all that it encompasses. We do give you thanks for the aspect of salvation in the sense of how you have protected us physically from harm and things of that nature, Lord. And so we don't want to minimize any aspect of of how you interact with the lives of your people. But Father, we thank you for the greatest deliverance that we needed. And that was not physical, but spiritual. That you saved us from our sins, from the judgment that is coming for all who are outside of Christ to be cast into the lake of fire and to know nothing but the wrath of God for all eternity. That is what we deserved and that is what you have delivered us from by pouring out and exhausting your wrath on the Son of God at the cross. And so we give you thanks, Father. Forgive us for how our lives are not lived in a worthy manner of this glorious gospel that we have been brought into. Help us, please help us to meditate on these truths. And as we continue in this study over the next 17 weeks, oh God, we beg that you would cause our roots to go deep in the gospel and that as those roots go deep, it would manifest itself in joyful lives for your glory. Please help us to that end, Lord. We don't want to come in and just gather together theological information and have more head knowledge when we leave. We want our heads to inform our hearts and to manifest itself in living lives that are worthy of the gospel. So please help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.